1: Hi, I'm Pac Romain, and you're listening to SubDoc. On today's episode, we take a little departure from our usual format, where George and I talk to interesting people about their favorite hand-picked documentaries. Today, I am a solo host, and the film is Barry, about President Obama's early college years, which is more biopic than documentary. However, we couldn't pass up the chance to speak with the screenwriter of Barry, Adam Mansbach. Barry is currently playing on Netflix. I caught up with Adam at his home in Berkeley, California. For those people listening, we are recording this a week before our inauguration of the president-elect. Not my president, as I've been saying, but it is true, which makes this prescient that we're talking to the writer of the screenplay, Barry, uh, which is currently on Netflix. You can check it out. And what was like? Like, what was the catalyst for you to write this? What?
0: What? What was the reason? What brought this to you? The initial germ of the idea was Vikram Gandhi, the directors. He came to me with the idea that we should do something about Obama at Columbia when he transferred there in 1981. Vikram and I both went to Columbia. I see. So I know him from college. And I think he read the pages and dreams from my father where Barry, as he was known then, talks about about (laughs) Columbia. And I think he felt a sense of recognition that, that you know, when we got there 14 years later, um, it was much the same place. It was alienating. It was not as enlightened. It was not the bastion that we hoped it would be. Um, and, you know, it's also a time in Obama's life when he was young and he was searching for meaning and identity. And it seemed like an opportunity... Oh, and also there's not that much on the record about it, right? It's not an incredibly well-documented time in his life. It's still relatively opaque. There were still liberties we could take, things we could invent without fear of contradicting what was on the record because the record was limited. right? You know, there was the pages and Dreams, which there's like six of them that apply to this time period. There's a few interviews with ex-girlfriends, people who knew him. Um, But it was a, it was a relatively sparse framework upon which I could improvise a story. So it was attractive to me in that way. And it was attractive because it seemed like a way to tell a fairly quiet story about race and identity and coming of age. But because this guy goes on to be the president, we could kind of get it into a mainstream conversation. We could you know, platform it in a significant way. So to me, it was a really interesting challenge. To try to retrofit who Obama was then, based on what we know of him now, and he 's still a bit slippery now, you know there's a way in yes. which the, 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 the control that he has over himself, the some people call it cool, some people call it aloofness, some people call it a professorial vibe, whatever it is, you know there, I think there's still like a, a desire on the part of the American public, particularly the segment, the half of the American public that likes him. To know him better, and you know he's done his job with such elegance and calm um, that we don't see any cracks in the facade we don 't know him as well as we might want to, so on that level, too, it was interesting to like try to figure out who he was and write it into existence absolutely um, and that's I think
1: shown extremely well in in Barry is that kind of the quiet. Reticent—I don't know if that's the right word—but like he very thoughtful. uh, Barry Obama, uh, where he's—I feel like he's at the crossroads, you know. Um, And you guys did a—you and the director Vikram uh, Gandhi—did a great job of presenting that because it's like it's—he's at this crossroads where he seems kind of a fish out of water. Is that? Would
0: you think that's correct? uh, Yes, I think he—he's a guy who. At that time in his life, hasn't figured out yet that the multitudes he contains are an advantage. They still strike him as a disadvantage. There's an exchange he has with a roommate where Will, Will, yeah, played by Elder Coltrane, yeah, um, who uh, from, from you Boyhood, know, right? from Boyhood, yeah, yeah. he's a star. Boyhood, great dude, sweetheart, oh, really, awesome. really cool guy. Yeah, everybody. On this movie. Like, I really enjoyed hanging out with all these actors. I got to be on the set a bunch. Oh, awesome. Um, and, and Will says, you know, Barry is complaining about how he's the only black dude in four of his five classes. Right. And Will is like, yeah, but you're half white too. And Barry looks at him like, what is that supposed to mean? Right. He's like, well, it means you can fit in anywhere. Right. And Barry looks at him like he's an idiot and is like, I fit in nowhere, Will. And that, I think, is authentic to how he felt at the time. Yeah. That being Kenyan and Kansan. And Hawaiian and Indonesian and all of these things that he was were not adding up to more than the sum of their parts. They were somehow adding up to less. And he's very much a guy seeking a scene, seeking an identity, seeking a place to feel like he fits in. But also at the same time, um, he's removed from it all. He's already entered kind of a monkish phase of his life. His days of partying are actually behind him at, you know, 21. Like, you know... Which is he's, incredible. Yeah, like he's, <laughs> he's on the downslope of that. He's not really drinking or smoking that much. He hasn't done coke in a couple years. You know, like he's yeah. not, he's, he's already kind of like beyond that point. He's right. already kind of withdrawn into himself in a way, which, yeah, is a difficult thing to convey. There is a lot of silence um, to him in the movie. There's a, there's a core that is very quiet to him.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and your your star, Devin, yeah. did an incredible job oh, yeah. of finding those quiet moments and playing those quiet moments. And yeah. Did you ever find yourself in a crossroads of that, where your like, identity, cultural identity, your personal identity
0: you just weren't sure of? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about a minute earlier about hip-hop and race and what it meant to be a white kid in hip-hop, particularly at a time when the dominant discussion was essentially about the historical evils you know per- perpetrated by the white race you know <laughs> there was definitely a sense of like okay i you know my favorite rapper in the world is like grand pooba from brand Nubian, and all he wants to talk about is dropping the bomb on the devil white man right, and he right. was coming straight out of you know a kind of elijah muhammad inspired cracker ass cracker 13 you know clarence 13x nation of islam you know uh uh nation of gods and earths Kind of sensibility, and you're like, okay, how do I both validate that I, you know, the 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 truth of this, but not feel like I'm a walking around, right? You know, this, with, appropriating. This, yeah, yeah. You no, know, what's what's the space that I can carve out for myself to live in? I mean, right. yeah, those things certainly preoccupied me. You know, figuring out the difference between the personal and the political. Like, okay, how come how come I have all these friends who are five percenters, and they're supposed to think that I'm the white devil, but I'm like sleeping on C Justice's couch 3 nights a week, right. you know, and I'm like me and me and you know, me and me and this dude Divine Jihad are like, you know, robbing paint stores together. You know like right, right. how do you figure all these things out? So, yeah, there was a sense I think I think identity is always in flux, it's always dynamic, and I've had a number of moments where I was trying to figure it all out um around race stuff back then, you know? Um how do you how do you how do you Exist as kind of some pro-black white racial activist. You know what does that mean? What does that look like in Boston? And then around the fact that also I'm Jewish, right? Which is a complex identity in itself. And I didn't grow up religious. Okay, I wasn't bar mitzvahed even. Right. Um, Nobody in my family really gave a shit about the religious aspects. Yet everybody felt very like culturally Jewish. So like, what does that mean? You didn't go to temple. It wasn't any of that stuff. No, none of that stuff. No, no. I got. I, I briefly went to a religious like like a Sunday school that I got kicked out of <laughs> for doing what? Um I had this really racist teacher as a matter of fact. What? This old dude named Israel Kagan who was like 45,000 years old, right, you know, right. grew up with fucking Methuselah, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he like he would literally talk about the the Jews having to move out of Roxbury when the blacks moved in in the 50s uh. and say shit like the reason the Jews are a great people is because they always give back to their communities. And the reason that the blacks aren't is that they don't, mm. except for Satch Sanders from the old Boston Celtics. Oh. And I'm like, my man, what the fuck are you talking right. about? You know, I was already a hip-hop kid. I was, like, challenging him. I was like, that's bullshit. He was like, prove it. You know, I didn't really have the ammunition at my fingertips, but... And, and I was at an age where, like you've been taught all your life that your teachers are right and they're to be respected, but here's this guy spewing what is clearly wrong to me. And I remember just struggling with it and acting out, and I just like... You know, just becoming disruptive and eventually getting kicked out after singing "Living on a Prayer" into a microphone <laughs> at an all-school assembly when I was supposed to read like some Hanukkah prayer that was spelled out in phonetic Hebrew because I didn't even take Hebrew because right. this was the type of Jewish school where you didn't even have to take Hebrew. Whoa! So you know, that's shit like lax. that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, um that's hilarious. But yeah, grappling with with the, the the particulars and the vagaries of a Jewish identity later, particularly when I wrote a novel called "The End of the Jews." You know, it's like, what does it mean to be? Jewish. Um, and when does that identity become weaponized? When do you use it? When do you not use it? Looking at my own family and how being Jewish might have played into my grandfather's life. Again, not a religious dude in any way, but like inescapable mm-hmm. for him as a lawyer, law professor, judge. You know, this dude was at Nuremberg. And then Whoa. this guy was on the faculty of the Harvard Law School. And then he was on the state Supreme Court of Massachusetts. Your grandpa? My grandfather. Holy shit. What's and his name? Benjamin Kaplan. Oh, wow. And you know, he was the first Jew to do some of those things. Wow. He integrated uh, a tennis club in Cambridge, like, he was the first Jewish member. And he didn't play tennis, he didn't give a shit. And he might not even have known that he was the first Jew because this guy who was his mentor, who was this blue blood Boston Brahmin guy who was very invested in breaking down these boundaries. He would do shit like go and behind the scenes arrange everything so that when my grandfather applied, his application would be accepted. Wow. So there's all of these weird things. And, you know, Judy, a Jewish identity is, I think, a particularly weird one because there are all these ways to feel marginal and um, alienated from it, but you don't walk away. You know, like you have Jews who say shit like, I'm Jewish, but I'm Buddhist. You don't really have Episcopalians who say shit like that. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, You can be Jewish and not believe in God. You can be Jewish and not go to temple, but you're still Jewish. Yes. What does it mean? It's much more than a religious identification. Yeah. Yeah, to be yeah. Jewish. Yeah. So, yeah, identity in all these realms is something I, I, I think a lot about. And you drew from that when you were writing Barry? Yeah, yeah. I did. Um, although, you know, I also wanted to, to be careful, and this was something that Vikram and I talked about a lot as we developed the story wanted to be careful that I wasn't just substituting my experiences for Barry's or substituting Vikram's experiences as an Indian-American guy at Columbia for Barry's. You know, it was like, there are things we relate to. There are reasons that we want to do this project based on our own empathetic connection to the material. Mm -hmm. But it's also got to be particular and authentic to what he would have experienced, not just, you know... Me with a different name walking around the streets of Harlem, you know, buying books from book vendors or whatever. Right, 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 right. And Vikram, I mean, it seems it
1: could be kind of. A, a, he 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 made a great documentary, mm-hmm. uh, which which is kind of like the same kind of idea, which is a cultural identity and and where does someone fit in? And I, I, the name's escaping me. now. Uh, it's called Kumari. Yeah, Kumari. Yeah, yeah that's a great documentary. Yeah, and yeah, very well done. Very it's funny. Very well done, and it's about. Like, how do we associate people in our lives? Where do they fit, and where where do what do we need in order to fit into the greater world? You know, because people basically, he's I don't want to say cons people, but he pretends to be a guru. Yeah, and people follow him, and then he's at the end is like surprise.
0: Yeah, you know. But I think what's brilliant about that movie, which begins with Vikram musing musing kind of on 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 the fascination with the east and with india and with yoga and gurus and uh he decides to explore this by moving to arizona growing out his hair and his beard and dis- and using his grandmother's accent and being like i am the guru kumare yeah. and immediately all these people in arizona all these white folks are like oh the aura he's amazing yeah. i feel such energy from him but what i think separates that movie from being just a prank or a con is that Vikram is not an asshole. Vikram is a is a is a really sensitive dude. And what he comes to realize in the course of the movie is that he somehow ends up feeling more honest and authentic as Kumare than he does as like Vikram from New Jersey. Right. You know, it's like he's having these interactions that are meaningful to him even though they're under the guise of this fake invented persona. So not only does he have to reveal himself, but he has to figure out like what has all this meant, you know? And who who is he really in some yeah. sense? Yeah, I think it's a really powerful well, movie. And
1: at the end, there are people that still love him just as much, and he, he forges some, uh, like, friendships and bonds that... Yeah. It's kind of like, well, it doesn't really fucking matter. Yeah. What your name is, who you are, where you come from, are you a good spirit, are you friendly, are you nice, do you have good intentions? Yeah. You know, and, like, I feel like in Barry, the same kind of themes were being presented. I mean, Invisible, obviously, was a through line, Mm -hmm. because you use the book, uh, the Ralph Ellison book, and
0: uh, the name pops up a lot, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Barry, that's one of the things that was on the record. According to him, in Dreams from My Father, he carried around this kind of tattered copy of Invisible Man throughout his first semester. And it's a brilliant book. And the fact that Ralph Ellison at the time was living in Harlem is also kind of interesting it Mm. it fills in something about what new york felt like at that time you know an invisible man came out in 1953 and ellison struggled for decades to write another novel and went through a bunch of shit and lost a draft in a fire and you know at that time in 81 he was sort of holed up in his house in harlem and everybody was kind of like what happened to him Uh a little bit but yeah he carries that book around he brings it to the basketball court by virtue of that another basketball player that he becomes friends with named PJ played by Jason Mitchell from from Straight Outta Compton. Uh, Awesome. Yeah. Um, He starts calling Barry invisible as a nickname and it becomes kind of a a thing. And yeah, the tension between being visible and invisible and what that means in all its iterations comes into play throughout the movie. Um, Barry feels both incredibly visible and incredibly invisible. And those two things are kind of in tension with each other. Oh yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. There is that duality there where he's, he's
1: the eyes are on him for a walking around with a white girl, mm-hmm. you know, and trying to toe that line between where does he fit in in the black world and the white world? Yeah. Um, which is a crazy duality to have. Like that is something that you don't see very often. It's not like uh, the story that's told very often is like mixed race, People, where do they fit in? You know, because um, it's generally either like a black guy trying to fit in the white world. Rarely you see the other of that, where like white people trying to fit in the black world. But um, yeah, I think that it's very interesting too. It's because it's like as as we all know is that Barry uh, does he
0: choose the black world? Is 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 that is that a- accurate to I, say? I, I think you could make certainly a, an argument that he does. Yeah, um, but I think really more fundamentally, he also chooses to embrace the the fullness of his heritage and his experience mm-hmm. and um, to let that kind of be a, you know, and, and he'll go on to kind of craft that into a metaphor for America. Um, right. There's a way in which, there's Greg Tate, who's one of my favorite critics, wrote a, a great essay on Baraka, which comes to mind because we were talking about Baraka earlier, and he says in it um, that Baraka's great, Strength and also the most frustrating thing about him has always been the way he consistently confuses his head with the godhead, you know hmm. the ways in which he kind okay. of assumes that his struggle and his foibles and his issues like stand in for everybody's right and I guess to some extent all writers have to do that, but you know Obama has found a way to flip that around in a sense and um find something universal in his own story and use that, use himself as a metaphor for America in a way, which uh, you sort of see him grappling toward in the, in the movie Mm -hmm. a little bit, you know, we wanted it to be very kind of epiphany free, you know, we didn't want to like, we wanted to leave him in process and like on the precipice, you know, it's definitely not like the six months that made him the man he would become. You're like, no, right. It's like, six interesting months and a lot of shit happens. Yeah. But he's still trying to figure it out at the end. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think certainly he moves toward embracing a legacy of of struggle, of um, you know responses to oppression. And 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 he find you know, there there's a there's a legacy there that he would be a different person if he didn't embrace and want to yeah. add on to. I read somewhere that um, college isn't about learning. It's, uh, it's about training. Training for what? To, uh, to want what you don't need and to uh, leave who you are at the door. But we're supposed to leave who we are at the door. I mean, that's the point. Well, some people can't leave who they are at the door. I mean, right? you know I'm the only black person in four of my five classes.
1: But you're half white, too. What's that supposed to mean? Just that you can fit in anywhere
0: But your happy price, Priceline. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact.
1: Your film starts out in 1981 when he transfers to Columbia. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of see him... Uh like with his best friend, um, who I wrote down was Salim. Yeah. yeah. Now is that based on a real friend or is that Yeah,
0: Salim is based on somebody. It's a funny thing because it's like there are these layers you have to peel back because in his book, Obama kind of composites people, composites people. Mm. And so it's like When you're compositing a composite, you know, you get these kind of compounded layers. But yeah, Salim, who in the book is Sadiq and in real life Uh, has a different name. uh, There is a real guy at the heart of all that, a Pakistani guy who he knew when he got to New York through friends at Occidental. He had a number of Pakistani friends at Occidental. And uh, he's the only guy that Barry knows when he gets to New York. Oh, got it interesting and like
1: i mean salim you know he's the like uh he's the like the comic relief yeah you know cat in this like one of my favorite moments i mean it's a really powerful moment but one of my favorite moments is when uh, uh barack finds out his father has been killed and salim is like fuck it i'm gonna go to wall street you know and he's like i'm gonna get a job and like and and the Barry Brock is not saying anything because he's like, "What the fuck just happened?" And you have that split. Mm-hmm.
0: It's very powerful. It's a really great scene. Thanks. Yeah, I was on set when we when we shot that. Um, Avi Nash, who plays Saleem, t- was in my mind just incredible. Great dude. Stayed in character the entire time. No. Like to this day, I still don't know what Avi actually sounds Offset? like. set. Yeah. His well, he slips into like four different voices. He does Barack. He does a great Barack imitation.
1: He does or a great white, Barry imitation. Yeah, he does a white person voice. Yep, yep, in that. yep. He, he even has a slight British accent. Yeah, is he British? Well, he's he's Pakistani, but I mean, oh, okay. he speaks
0: he speaks English with a, a British accent as he would have being ah. of that origin. You know, because ah, of you know, yeah. like when you learn English, you learn British English, and right, a right. lot of the former you right, know, right, right, like India and yeah. stuff, yeah. Um. Yeah, no, I, I love the Salim character. He was a joy to write. Um, he likes his weed. Yeah, if anything, we had to prune him back because <laughs> yeah. he threatened to take over the movie. Like, yeah, at a certain you could see it. You could feel that. Yeah, at a certain point, Vikram was like, "Yo, like Salim is almost on screen more than Charlotte, and that we can't really have that. Like, we gotta cut it back a little bit." Right. Um, there were there were like other Salim scenes that I wrote in the middle of the of the filming because. The, this, the dynamic between Salim and Barry was so good that, like, w- partly we just wanted more of it. And then, and then like, cooler heads prevailed, and it was like, wait, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, like. Yeah. It could turn um, into a comedy, a duo, a buddy comedy pick. Oh, yeah. With like, we, we joked a lot on set about this spinoff that was just the Further Adventures of Salim. Yeah. Um, it can and, be called go the fuck to school or go to yeah. the fuck to class or something. <laughs> yeah, and Avi's definitely somebody like Devin Terrell, like damn near everybody in the movie that I really look forward to hopefully working with again. But also Salim, besides being very funny, is also the guy who has no problem cutting Barry down to size. Right, right, talking right. a bunch of shit to him. Right. Kind of puncturing the bubble of his own self-regard. And you know, whenever he gets grandiose, you can rely on Salim to like, You know, shut him down, and they share an otherness in a way. You know, they're they're both outsiders. They're both other. They're both brown kids. um, But they also have very different paths and and goals. You know, Salim is a a bit of a hedonist. um, Obviously, but he does have that safety net—the one you're referring to at the end, where like apropos of nothing. He just stumbles into the kitchen and is basically like, it's getting lame being broke. I think I'm going to take a a Wall Street job. You know, daddy has connections. Right. Fuck it, you know? Yeah. And yeah, Barry doesn't even respond because he's just gotten this phone call. Right. So yeah, you have almost this split screen sense where Salim is like, you know looking in the mirror and, like, combing his mustache and talking about his plans. Yeah. And Barry's just, like, distraught in the other room. And, of course, goes on to tell almost no one, including his girlfriend, that his father died. Yeah. I thought that was odd. I, I mean, he seems... I mean, I guess he's always...
1: I mean, one a criticism of uh, President Obama was his, like, emotional guard, you know, he has that guard up a lot, like, some sort of defense, mm-hmm. um, so, like, to see that happening, but, like, God, that ride in the limo going to the wedding was, I was just like, oh, my God, like, I feel like I've been in those situations where girls are like, I don't know where you are right now, and you're right. just like, fuck, I don't, like, as guys, right. you're like... I don't want to have to ruin your day, ruin the wedding by saying my dad died in a fucking car. My dad did die in a car accident as mm-hmm. well and like yeah. I can understand that like feeling like Jesus Christ like what how do you go
0: on beyond that, you know? Like what kind of feelings do you bring up with that kind of shit? Yeah. Yeah, no. Uh the another thing the movie really is about is is kind of masculinity or masculinities, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and the same way that Barry is kind of l- l- trying to figure out who he is racially he's trying to figure out who he is also as a man and there's sort of competing versions of masculinity and he's sort of sizing up various potential models throughout the movie you know whether it's pj whether it's salim whether it's like random b-boys on the street right, or whatever right. um and yeah there's that tension between silence and revelation and yeah and you know i think th- I, to me it, it felt very plausible that that he would keep something like this to himself, you know I've also been through sudden tragic deaths, and there's a way in which even speaking it can make it worse right um, yeah you
1: need you need some time to digest that stuff,
0: yeah, yeah, and of course the, you know the only people he does tell about his father's death in the course of the movie are these the bartenders these yeah. Ugandan bartenders at the wedding he attends yeah um yeah, well,
1: now what it I, that that scene stood out for me, and I think part of it is I was like. What is the message what was your message for that in that scene? why did he why in your mind would
0: he choose those two guys to tell this to what what's the message there Well, I think there's a few things and I don't know if there's i i I'm, I'm resistant to like you know mm-hmm. what is the message because yeah. you know if if a scene is working or a movie's working there should be multiple things going on. It doesn't, you know, if there was just, like, a message, I could just write that shit in spray paint (laughs) on a wall and be done with it. Put it on a poster in the background? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, a a number of things are going on, right? I mean, he feels... Awesome. You know, he's he's isolated at this wedding. It's this, uh, you know, it's his girlfriend's sister's wedding, and he's the only black dude there with the exception of these bartenders. Um, Well, and um, James... Oh, yeah, Boggs, yeah, right, yeah. and James Box, yeah. yes, good point <laughs> um, but you know these guys I mean, it's safe to talk to them because he'll never see them again, but also oh. when he hears their voices right. and realizes that they are from a neighboring country, something resonates in him. He hears them and hear and 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 they remind him of his father, who of course he's thinking about already right. um it's kind of an intuitive move, it's not something that he thinks out ahead of time. He goes in there and they pour him a drink and they can see that something is not quite right with this guy but also there's this profound separation between them because you know he's a guest at this wedding they keep calling him sir all right and there's i think there's a sense of there's a sense in which he's struggling and 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 grasping for and desirous of a connection to them that he can't necessarily achieve because they're on the other side of the bar and he's wearing a suit and they're wearing bartender uniforms and so the connection that he does forge by revealing this information to them is is both kind of a a tender one and a and a very odd and awkward one. And you know it's funny, I mean there there's there was another scene with them in the movie that unfortunately got cut for sometimes, you know, sometimes cuts happen that are frustrating. And right. In this case, it had to do with not the content of the scene but other factors. Like how it was shot and how you transitioned from it and like the blocking and all that stuff. But there was another very short scene where uh, one of the bartenders approaches him while he's standing outside the tent and, and asks him what tribe his father was from. And Barry doesn't know offhand. And the guy lists a number of tribes Mm. and Barry's like that one, you know, the the, the last one you said. And the guy's like, that is my tribe also, Ah. you know, like we're brothers or something like that. And it's kind of a final moment, you know, I'm. I was attached to it because I wrote the motherfucker. I yeah. don't necessarily think the movie suffers from it not being in there. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. I think there's 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 a number of things hopefully going mm-hmm. on in that, right, right, in that right. scene. Yeah. Yeah. It's, how long did it take you to write the script? Um, I write very fast. Yeah. My my approach at this point was with screenwriting in particular is to write a very detailed and elaborate treatment. Which might take me, t- <clears throat> which might take me longer than the actual screenplay. So, oh wow. So you write like a de- not just an outline, but a treatment. A treatment, yeah. yeah. Like for a, a script that ends up being hundred pages, my treatment might be twenty five pages. It's scene for scene. Wow. It's everything, you know, that I know about, and it still leaves me room to improvise. Right. Vikram and I started developing the story in the summer of two thousand four, walking around Morningside Heights. Oh, I'm wow. sorry. 2014. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, that's all right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah 2014, yeah. not 2004. Yeah. I was like, damn, right after the Democratic National <laughs> Yeah, right, right. We <laughs> saw it coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, like Vikram actually lived on the block that Barry lived on, 109 between Broadway and Amsterdam, or uh, Amsterdam and Columbus. Um, so we spent uh, the summer talking it through, developing the ideas. I went home to Berkeley that fall. And wrote a first draft, I think in like September of 2014. Awesome. And then Vikram and Dana O'Keefe, the creative producer, and I kind of workshopped it and talked it through and I made revisions and we, you know, ideas came out. Um, The script changed a lot, but we we kept working at it probably for the next eight months or something and Mm -hmm. only when we were really sure that we were completely happy with it did we show it to anyone else right Um, we went out for financing with it and you know it it was really an instructive thing for me I'd written other scripts I'd been down the road with other projects that never got made and after working with Dana and Vikram on the process of developing this I kind of see why because our process with this made a lot more sense. And we we kept it close to the vest until we were sure that it was ready. And when we finally sent it out, it was in a polished enough state that people could really see what it was and what we were trying to do. And of the three companies we sent it to for financing, all of them wanted to finance it. And we were able to pick the one that seemed like the best match and proceed from there. And then it was very fast. I mean, it was a very fast track to production. I mean, I think we sent the script out in yeah like shit mid 2015 um we got fully financed we we shot it in like march and april of 2016 wow had a cut ready to premiere at toronto in september netflix bought it there and it was in theaters and on netflix by december so i mean it's very rapid in the in the in the world i mean for for the world of film that's pretty damn quick is this your first screenplay First produced screenplay, first yeah. Produce I've done some screenplay. other projects. Yeah. I, had a, I had a screenplay that was at the Sundance Screenwriters Lab a couple of years ago. Um, I've written a handful of things, but this is the first one yeah. that's been made. Yeah.
1: So, I have, like, so we have people email us. When we say like, th- we're going to do this interview, do you have any questions? We had some people email us some questions. You pretty much answered most of them, but I have one. Did you reference any particular books while making this? And it sounds like you did with, with uh, Brock's
0: first book. Was yeah. there, were
1: there any others?
0: I mean, in a sense, yes. Um, not books that I've read for like specific research purposes, but books that, in a sense, mm. are part of this sort of nimbus of ideas and stories that are in some way, some perhaps vague way, or perhaps pointed way, uh, applicable and part of the story. Invisible Man is certainly one of them. Right. Um Devin read that book to prepare for the role, you know. Oh, okay. Devin also did everything to prepare for the role. Okay. Like Devin is Australian.
1: No. Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah. That That's was a great moment cool. when we we had just shown the film in Toronto and like everybody was on stage and we had our ovation and stuff and then and Devin he, gets the like, mic crikey. and he's like he's like you know, he basically the first thing he says is like so I'm Australian. And everybody's like, every, there's like a riot in the building because people were like, <laughs> no fucking That's way. That's pretty impressive. Um, was he in LA? Did you cast out of LA? No, we cast him out of Perth, Australia. What? Yeah. Did yeah. you just have an open casting? Um, Why Perth, Australia? We, he was on our radar. So it was really interesting. Devin had been cast by Steve McQueen in a HBO series that McQueen was doing. They shot the pilot and it didn't get picked up
1: the so, Steve McQueen. The Steve
0: McQueen. Wow. So, Devin was It's funny. This is his debut and yeah. we're sort of the beneficiaries of McQueen's worldwide, you know, casting search in which he unearthed Devin. Oh. Um, but we got to kind of premiere Devin, yeah. debut Devin, which is really cool. Um I wouldn't say it was an open casting. I know that Vikram saw hundreds of people and I know oh. that when he saw Devin, he was like it's a rap. Yeah. Um but uh other other books, I mean, yeah, I mean you know, things that in one way or another were important would be something like Invisible Man, something like The Dutchman, which is a Baraka play about a relationship between a white woman and a black dude, um, another country for me by Baldwin was a touchstone mm-hmm. in a mm-hmm. sense in that. And then, you know, there there I happen to I happen to come in to the project already knowing a lot about New York in nineteen eighty one because mm-hmm. Of, you know hip-hop really. right 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 um, so i mean there were there were there were books and films that were important on that level you know something like uh something like the documentary style wars which is about graffiti writers which i've seen you know 70 million times and right. my daughter has at this point seen enough that she has memorized it, and we walk around quoting it to each other um if i can interject real quick if you want to see uh, Adam's daughter,
1: you got to check out this Funnier Die video. What was the name of it? Oh, that?
0: yeah. My daughter is a rapper. She's eight. She rhymes under the <laughs> name awesome. The Jazz Wolf. And we recently did a video for a song called Mush Lobster, which, uh, you know. <laughs> Is her tribute to Boston. If you wanna see an eight year old rapping her ass off in a strong Boston accent about very Boston things <laughs> while also smashing a lobster with a baseball bat, you should check out it's Mush Lobster awesome. by the Jazz Wolf. Yeah, it was on the Funnier Die homepage and it's still in their archives there somewhere. Um, So, yeah, you know, a documentary like Style Wars or a movie like Wild Style, you know, these are documents that are from 81, 82, 83, and, you know, capture something about the city at that time. I'd say those were important, too. And we cast Fab Five Freddy in almost, like, a nod to that era, you know, because Fab was one of – he's in Wild Style, and he's also, like – one of the guys who brought the uptown hip-hop scene downtown to clubs like Danceteria where Barry and Charlotte go to dance. Ah, and in okay. a sense, he's a guy who forged connections between black and white, uptown and downtown, around across racial and class lines. And in a way, that's um, the same thing that Obama aspires to do politically. So right. it seemed right and resonant for Fab to play the book vendor in the movie and, and sort of like mm-hmm. as a nod to that time and as a nod to a number of things. You know? Oh,
1: yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so uh, here another question was, you know, historically there's been tension between Harlem and Columbia. Yeah. Uh, and, it according, you know, this person's thinking it's getting worse. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? And it seemed to be part of the barrier. Yeah. There was... Like, he called being called college boy and, mm-hmm. you know, that...
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think in, in, in classic kind of town town versus gown, they say, um, I mean, Columbia is the second largest landowner in Manhattan after oh, the wow. Catholic Church. They own a shit ton of property in and around Harlem and, and just Manhattan in general. Um, Morningside Heights, where the campus is, yeah, is surrounded by, you know, sort of Harlem in the north and on the east and... Um, yeah, that I think that tension is real. It's an oasis of, of privilege. And in 81, it was an oasis of relative safety in an otherwise pretty gnarly neighborhood. I mean, the block that Barack lived on was still super dicey when I got there in 1994. You could buy coke or weed on that block in 1994. Mm-hmm. Um, in 81, it was hectic. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that he, you know, as the movie opens, he neglects to transfer from the two train to the one, which is a classic mistake that you make as a Columbia student. You don't realize that the tracks split, and if you don't get off the two train, it's going to go east and drop you on 116th, but on the wrong side of Morningside Park. So then you're faced with this dilemma. Do you walk across the park, or do you get back on the downtown train, go back to 96th Street, transfer to the one? Right,
1: right, right. Uh, (laughs)
0: So, you know, that crucible of kind of like walking through the park at night. Yeah. You know, like I remember doing that. I even have a character do that in a novel that I wrote in oh, two thousand five. Nice. That I think is why Vikram wanted me for this project because it's about a Columbia student. It's about race. It's called Angry Black White Boy. Um. Anyway, uh, which you can find on Amazon. Yeah, probably. Um, I don't. I don't know if the if the tension between Columbia and Harlem has gotten worse. I mean, I don't currently live in New York, so I can't definitively say. Right. Right. But it right. would, I, in a sense, it would surprise me because real estate values in, in Harlem are rising at a staggering pace mm-hmm. and not to suggest that there's now like equity between Columbia and its, uh, you know, its sort of neighbors to the north or the east, but um, all those areas are, are becoming increasingly kind of, kind of gentrified. At least when I go there, it seems that way to me. So I, don't, I, don't, I can't honestly say if the tension is getting worse. Um, but it's, it's been there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. mean, the famous student protests at Columbia in 1968, um, were all around this very issue, around Columbia's plans to build in Harlem and like how that was going to impact the neighborhood, the residents. So students were protesting Columbia's kind of incursions into Harlem. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's for real always been a source of, of tension as far back as I know. Right, right, definitely. Right.
1: And were there any, like, particular... Traps you fell in when writing this, where you you had to be more sensitive to um, race or more sensitive to class, or like was there were there moments when you're like I I can't push this this much, where just for like storytelling purposes.
0: I mean, I I wanted you know I think there's a certain audacity to making a movie about a sitting president where you imagine what he was doing when he was you know 21 years old. So I mean, we didn't want to shy away from any of these things. I wanted to confront those things. If anything. It was more about navigating around anything that might seem too on the nose. Got it. Um, for example, one of Barry's ex girlfriends broke up with him by telling him that what he needed was a strong black woman. That she saw his future wife as like a real strong, powerful, take no shit black woman. That happened. That happened. Yeah. And you know there there's a longer version of the limousine scene with uh-huh. Charlotte where she says that shit. Hmm. And I remember struggling with that and was like, yo. This it's funny because like, you know, I used to teach writing uh, workshops like to graduate students. I, I was on the faculty for a couple years at Rutgers and I was teaching oh, wow. like, you know, graduate fiction seminars and like this is exactly the kind of thing that my students would cut you know, so you, you bring a story into workshop and somebody's like, yo, this is too much. This is too on the nose, right. it's too it's too, it's too e- pushy. Cut it, cut yeah. it. And the response might be, but it really happened. Yeah. And if I'm the teacher, I'm like, doesn't matter not a defense. I don't give a shit what really happened. If it doesn't work on the page, it doesn't work. And this is one of those moments where it's like, yeah. "Oh my god, this really happened. Somebody really said that to him. We right. have to use that." And then it's like, "But at the same time, we can't use that. It's too much." Right. And that was one thing that I remember going back and forth on. I mean, I think we even shot the scene with that in it, but ultimately, you know, it was like too much. So there were things like that where it's like, maybe it happened, but maybe it's too much. Maybe it's too on the nose. Um Vikram, I remember often saying like, I don't want people to be talking about race throughout the movie. And then he and I would battle and go back and forth about that. And I'd be like, but that is what they would be talking about. And you know, you're in college and this is what happens. And Barry is basically walking around in a world of microaggressions and it's going to be on his mind. It's going to be on other people's mind and da, da, da. And like, you know, it was a dynamic push and pull. And, you know, we, we had to kind of constantly be... Thinking about how to calibrate it, you know, what do you show, what do you tell, what is too much? But I don't think we ever had a sense that anything was like out of bounds because it was too provocative. It was just like, what can we, how do we best serve the story we want to tell? Was really all. Well, how the goal do you, how do you know if it's too much on the page? Like, what's an indicator of
1: that? Is it is it just that it reads too too true or too false or? No, I think it's just too heavy-handed. Too heavy-handed would yeah. be the 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 or ham-fisted, as they say. Right, exactly. <laughs> Which is a great term. Yeah,
0: picture some dude running around with like handfuls of bacon. You uh, know, like what's yeah. what? Why are you doing that? Yeah, um, yeah. Is is it is it heavy-handed? Is it too much? I mean, there are some people who will see the movie and think that everything in it is too heavy-handed. Mm. Um, there are others who are like, this is the most accurate portrayal of like what it feels like to navigate that world and constantly be in everybody's uh, crosshairs because of who you are and what you look like and what you're supposed to represent. Other times it all seems like one big distraction. People seem like distractions. (laughs) I feel like I could just stop talking and, I don't know, just disappear. And become a monk and, and read and, and write and think for a year.
1: Don't do that. You
0: know, every time I open my mouth in class, it's like I'm supposed to speak on behalf of all black people. Meanwhile, I uh, I quit going to black student union meetings because I uh, I didn't feel like I belonged there either. The world is a big place, honey. You'll find your way. As a
1: professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over,
0: which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact.
1: I, I love President Obama, and I love like 90% of what he's done uh, in the eight years that he's been our president. And to th- watch uh, Barry and to know what happens, it's so incredible that he chose, he had many paths he could have chosen. And mm-hmm. to cho- choose one that brought him into community organizing and then running for office. And like you said, he has this like steadfast determination and ambition Um that it's like he could have easily chosen a different path. Like there could have been yeah. a, a million other ways to have gone. Yeah, one of absolutely. them was like maybe Wall Street, or. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he chose his direction and kept that kind of, um, the the stuff that he learned growing up in with a mixed race family and in Indonesia and his friends and it makes him so compelling. Um, and what he, so my as we like as we close in on the Obama administration the eight years what what do you think makes president obama special what was from writing this like what did what do you feel is like a special trait that he has
0: it's hard to even know where to start i mean i think there are so many but two things that i would say that maybe are less obvious or have been commented on slightly less i think number one he's the best writer of any president that we've seen in a very long time and maybe ever i mean this guy is nice with the pen. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Number 2, he's the funniest president that we've ever it's had. Very funny. By leaps and fucking bounds. Right. And I've had a number of conversations with people who can testify to that personally. Yeah. Um Yeah, I mean, I think those two qualities are, and are under the radar. No, yeah, I mean, yeah. clearly. I mean, that, I think that almost goes without saying that he's a he's a fantastic orator um who draws on multiple Traditions of oration, yeah, and melds them in very sophisticated and subtle ways. Um, there are different strains of tradition that he is is really conversant with and is kind of recombining. Um, the way that he pauses, even, is incredible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, the. The confidence that it takes to pause and collect your thoughts without feeling pressed or rushed. Right, 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 right. That last
1: speech he gave in Chicago, especially when he's talking about his wife and his kids, and he does that pause where you're absolutely right to not feel that... Anxious need to fill in dead air, mm-hmm. where he feels confident enough that he can think about it for a second yeah. is incredible. Did you see the him giving uh, Biden the
0: uh, the medal uh, that that speech? Um, I, I watched you know like the one minute clip. Yeah, of it. yeah, uh, yeah. I didn't see. I haven't yet watched the the speech. That was what that was yesterday. It was right. yesterday. Yeah, yeah. pretty incredible stuff. Like he's he always he's so
1: emotional. Like when he when he speaks, like I usually with presidential speeches you don't feel anything yeah. other than like hmm yeah. okay whatever. But like that man always makes me think. Always like sometimes I'll just fucking cry because like the stuff like his speech in in Chicago was. Incredible. I I love great speeches. John Favreau is like you ever met that dude? No, I never. Like have. he's such a great speech writer, mm-hmm. you know, like the way that people can move you with emotion and intelligence and thought and like that's for me is like President Obama's one of his great abilities is to bring all that to the fucking page, you know. And I think yeah. that's what your 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 script, Barry, illuminates is that he has all of those things going on he's so well-rounded you mm-hmm. know that he can bring uh all those thoughts to to uh to people and and constituents obviously um we're getting near our end but i we i haven't even gotten to all my other notes about this. For, particularly like you you worked with alan zweibel like what was
0: that all about so here we go and Alan Bell and I met at a book festival in Arizona, I guess, maybe three years ago now. And uh, he was a fan of Go the Fuck to Sleep, which is a, <laughs> a, you know obscene, fake children's book that I wrote a few years ago. Yes. And uh, I was, of course, a fan of his because he is one of the original Saturday Night Live writers. Yes. And uh, has done a host of other things. It's basically you know just a comedy hall of famer. Yeah, Um, 40 years in the business and we hit it off and we had dinner and we decided that we should try to work together on something. Uh, And somehow that something ended up being a a children's book series, a middle grades book series about a kid in the present who starts trading letters through time with Benjamin Franklin and eventually travels back in time uh, to try to undo the damage he's done to the future of the country through this correspondence and fucking up the Constitution via some jelly that spills from a <laughs> peanut butter sandwich that he sends back in time. It's 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 pretty ridiculous. Um and Alan and I worked on those two books together. I wrote the kids letters uh because you know I'm basically a thirteen year old. Yeah. And Alan wrote Franklin's letters because he went to elementary school with Ben Franklin. <laughs> um and it was a lot of fun. And then Alan and Dave Barry and I just wrote a book together. Oh wow. Alan and Dave were friends. They had written a novel together um, I grew up reading Dave's columns, and he was like one oh, of my comedy absolutely. heroes. Was so, he out of like Saint Petersburg Sentinel? What was wasn't he out of like uh, Miami Herald? Miami Herald, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so the three of us just <laughs> wrote a parody of a Passover Haggadah, uh, the liturgy for the, the Passover Seder, nice. called "For This We Left Egypt," um, <laughs> which will be out in a couple months in time for your f- twenty. Seventeen right. or fifty-seven, seventy-seven seder, depending right, on right. which calendar you operate on. The whitefish is so dry. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah, he's he's incredible, man. I mean, like the first Gary Shandling show was one of my all-time. Favorite. When I was a kid watching that yeah. shit, I was like, I didn't know TV could do this. Yeah, no, you know?
0: they broke a ton of boundaries yeah. with that. And Alan is the, I think, co-creator of that show. Yeah. He and Gary were comedy writing partners for a Ugh. long time. He's told me some incredible stories Ugh. and jokes about Gary. Gary I love would like. Gary. Gary, you know, what's great about Alan, among other things, is that he's the most kind of faithful straight man you could ask for. He never needs to be the guy making the joke. He's happy to be the butt of the joke. He loves to be made fun of. Yeah. Like a, a gig with me, Dave, and Alan is basically Dave and I sitting on either shot. Uh, either side of Alan on stage and just taking pot shots at him for two hours awesome. while he laughs his ass off.
1: I saw him in conversation with Billy Crystal and it was the same thing. Oh yeah I was at that. Oh you were yeah, at, yeah, the, at the yeah, yeah. Castro? Yep. Yeah Billy just like it was all Billy Crystal and Alan would just be like
0: yeah yeah and right. it was hilarious. You yeah, know like, Alan is a great guy and it's been a, a pleasure to, to work with him and get to know him and you know not for nothing he embodies Not just the forty years of comedy history that he was a part of, but another forty before that. Right. So you know, through you know, it's like Alan's reference points are the things he grew up watching. So you know, his conception of comedy encompasses everything from you know SNL all the way back to Sid Caesar and Mm. Henny Youngman. Right. And all of that is very much and the show of shows. You know, like all of that is very much alive in his sensibility, which is incredible to be around. You know, Um, to learn. How he thinks about humor writing is has been really I, fun. Are you kidding? That
1: must be a treasure. Yeah. I mean, he's one of the greatest com like comedy writers of today. Yeah. Like that guy's a legend. He's absolutely. In, that's in that's amazing. I can't imagine just sitting next to him and chatting, maybe having a scotch or something. Yeah. Just like the knowledge he must have about comedy is yeah. seems incredible. Yeah. Uh, and I know. Um, uh, you wrote Go to the Fuck to Sleep, which was a, a huge book. I just listened to the Samuel L. Jackson reading mm-hmm. this morning of that. Um, what was the, was that for your daughter? Did you write that specifically? Yeah.
0: My daughter, the jazz wolf was like two and a half when I wrote that book and sleeping was not high on her list of priorities. <laughs> um, and it's funny, it's a book I wrote with very few expectations. Yeah. Um, yeah never really even imagined that I would publish it, which is funny because I don't generally ever write anything without that intention. But at the time, there was no such genre as obscene fake children's books. That book, I think, pretty much invented it. So uh, you know, sometimes you hit a bullseye that you didn't even know existed. And that book was really just an attempt to honestly render the interior monologue of a parent, you know, faced with this task of uh, trying to put a Child to bed right and i didn 't really necessarily think that it had any universal appeal. I thought maybe it was just true for me, um, but it turns out that it was kind of a taboo to a taboo that needed breaking you know that like yeah. there's a kind of there 's a fence around what you 're allowed to talk about as a parent there 's a certain preciousness you know and and it 's kind of the opposite of honesty, but people nurture these private frustrations that can really overwhelm you. And this book, I think, gave them a certain kind of catharsis yeah. and gave them permission to talk about some of these difficult things. And I think that's why it kind of resonated and found its uh, audience.
1: Yeah, 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 you know? absolutely. It seems like it found its audience far and wide. It's been translated 40 times or something? Yeah, yeah, we're in about 40
0: languages. Um, you know, it's funny. There's like three different Spanish translations. There's the Spanish, the Mexican, the, the Latin American translations. My favorite... Fact is that uh, it's been translated into Jamaican Patois. <laughs> yeah. Only two books have ever been translated from standard English into Patois. Awesome. The Bible is one of them. Go the Fuck to Sleep is the other. Yeah. But only well. one of those two has an audio book by Shaggy.
1: So <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah.
0: Well, Adam, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate
1: this. Congrats. Yeah, thank on, you on the show and, and whatever else you got coming up. Now I want to do a little dipping into that record collection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know Let's do it. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. You can find episodes of SUPDOC on iTunes, Stitcher, and tune in. Please subscribe, review, and rate.
0: For show notes and more information about George and Paco's appearances visit subdocpodcast.com. You can send your corrections, questions, or comments to subdocpodcast at gmail.com.
1: We'd also like to thank Documentary News for their continuing support. Please check out documentarynews.com. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at subdocpodcast. This show is produced by Will Scoville and our theme music by David Siegel.